You are listening to Talking Images, the official podcast of icmforum.com. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Chris, and in this episode, Mathieu, Saul, Tom, and I will finally reveal each of our choices for best film of 2021. And of course, we're talking about four pretty different films. If you listened to the rest of our 2021 countdown, you know by now that our tastes don't exactly line up, so expect some disagreements and uh, passionate discussion. But uh, with that out of the way, let's not keep our dear listeners waiting and uh, continue where we left off in alphabetical order. Mathieu, what is your number one film of 2021? My number one film is a film I was highly skeptical of when it was announced. I was incredulous that it was being made, especially by this director, because really, why remake West Side Story in 2020? And why is Steven Spielberg, of all people, directing it? Well, as it turns out, Steven Spielberg is quite good at this directing thing. And I think a pre-existing musical is actually perfect for him, as this film shows. Spielberg is a superb technical filmmaker, one of the best when it comes to movement in cinema. And where he genuinely runs into trouble for me is with his sentimentality. A project like this one actually turns out to be perfect for him, as it's a tragedy and musical, so heightened emotions are to be expected. And what the original was missing, aside from actual Latino actors beside Richard Moreno, which this remake also fixes, is exactly what Spielberg was best suited to bring in opening the environment of a stage-bound musical and giving it the sense of taking place in a fully realized world. The musical numbers here are essentially what cinema is made for, a masterful combination of movement, color, and music in the service of storytelling. The best example of what Spielberg brings to the story is how he and Tony Kushner reimagine the number cool, reinventing the number entirely and giving Mike Feist an opportunity to essentially steal the film for a few minutes. And his character generally ends up being a standout, essential in making this retelling of West's story a relevant film today. The Jets, I mean, they could be Trump supporters, obviously, but they could also be European kids thinking about going to Syria or any other example of radicalization, right? People who feel so disenfranchised that fighting for what little they do have seems like the only option they have left. And that, that conflict really, really gives another power to this film that was not quite present in, in the original, even though it's also great. M- meanwhile, lines like, life is all white in America, if you're white in America, that, that has just as much punch now than it did in 1961. But it's put in a much more dynamic and expansive film overall. And it's saying something that I find this remake to actually be an improvement over the original a film I consider to be one of the best musicals ever made. So, so I can probably go first here, since I'm probably the person who liked uh, West Side Story the least. It's uh, still good, and I think part of it is just me not generally being a big fan of musicals. I, I really liked the original West Side Story, but th- that's not quite great to me either, so not a big musical fan, so that's just writing me a little bit off at the beginning. I think I did have a few other issues and a few things I really enjoyed here. So first of all, I really enjoyed the complete change in the framing, setting uh, the film in essentially utter ruins and focusing in on type of gentrification 
and setting that's a framing device, essentially a dying lifestyle. That was really interesting. I will also completely agree with you, uh, Mathieu, that uh, Mike Feist was wonderful in the film. He kept stealing every scene he was in. I'm not sure if I 100% bought him uh, as a believable uh, gang leader. He wasn't intimidating enough uh, for me, but in every other way, he was just right on the money. My issue actually, which might sound a little bit odd coming from me, is that it felt a little bit too artificial. And you guys know I love almost everything artificial, but this film felt like it was a stage play. You kind of felt like, and this is the case too, it, it took mainly uh, stage performance in and it essentially performed the stage play, but in a real world with a lot of CGI. And it kind of felt like that, and when I like artificial, it's because it acknowledges it, and I didn't really feel like West Side Story acknowledges it. So that was a slight minus. For me, it still has an epic scope. A lot of the songs are good. Uh, I can certainly see why so many loved it, and why it was nominated for Best Picture, but it's just not quite my kind of film. I share a similar view to Chris here. I'm not a huge fan of musicals either. I would rate Singing in the Rain and Strictly Ballroom as two of my favourite films, but I don't really seek out musicals. They're not a genre that usually resonate with me. And I have seen the original West Side uh, Story. I think it's an okay film, nothing special. So I wasn't really excited about the prospect of revisiting the story in a, a remake by Spielberg. I have to say that the music is good and the choreography is pretty great. There's some great uh, dance scenes in there but the story didn't really work for me it was a film that I kind of knew I wasn't going to enjoy before going into it and you know I gave it a chance I went with it but it just didn't really strike me as one of Spielberg's better films I can see why people love it but it's not a film for me West Side Story was a film that I was quite skeptical about watching also I had seen the original, but back when I was in high school, and I wasn't a particularly big fan of the original. So even though I knew there was room for improvement, you know, it wasn't something which grabbed me enough in the first place that I actually wanted to watch a remake of it. However, I actually ended up re-watching the original, and then shortly afterwards, uh, watching the Spielberg version for the first time. And I've got to say, I've got to say I was impressed. I have to agree with Mature, it is an improvement over the 1961 version. The casting of actual Latino actors is a big plus, but even individual sit scenes have actually been rewritten ever so slightly to heighten the racial currents of the earlier film. And it really plays into all the Black Lives Matters and toxic masculinity topics that are really hot in Hollywood at the moment. And I think Ariana DeBose really rose to the challenge too. I th in my opinion, she totally eclipsed Rita Marino in a portrait of Anita as someone who's more down-to-earth and more vulnerable than Marino ever was. And I also really like Marino herself more on this version, the character that's been written for her or rewritten for her. And there is a bit more focus on the romance than in the original, although I think still the pair of them falling in love is quite rushed but we do get more of a sense of them generally falling for each other whereas the first one you don't really get you know that you know romance or whatever it's just the love at first sight you don't really feel the romantic connection there so i think spielberg did that much better 
And look, the songs and the dance and the dance routines, yeah, they are more iconic. They do play better out in the original. But I think overall, I would say it is a superior remake. And just like Nightmare Alley, one of those remakes that is better than the original. I do think it's strange that you don't like musicals, Chris, given your love of artificiality in general. But I can see what you mean in the specific balance here, because I do often share this issue of films that don't embrace either their artificiality or their quote-unquote realism. And I, I see how you could find that in this one. Uh, I, I found that opening up the stage, I suppose, uh, really served to make the film more dynamic and I didn't get this, this clash, but I can definitely see what you see uh, in it. And I, I generally think it's interesting how divisive musicals are, even among cinephiles who obviously are very open-minded, even people who watch a lot of different kind of movies, it seems that musicals, more than any other genre, remains uh, very divisive. It's quite interesting. My number one film of 2021 is the only film in my top five that I'd never heard of until a few days before sitting down and watching it. When I saw that my local art house cinema was showing a film with this title, my first thought was, I didn't realize that that Deborah Carr film had been remade. But of course it hadn't. And the film that I'm talking about is that other Norwegian film that I've alluded to a couple of times, Excel Votes the Innocence. Ironically titled, it's a dark thriller revolving around four children, including one who's non-verbal autistic, who discover that they have superpowers, supernatural powers, and promptly misuse those powers. And I've been reading a lot of reviews of the film, and some reviewers have been really quick to label the kids as evil, but it's not as simple and clear-cut as that. Two of the kids do some very cruel things, but their pent-up anger is always understandable. And the film paints a curious picture of kids existing with minimal adult supervision or guidance. And I'm not quite sure exactly what it's trying to say about autism, which we might get to a bit more in the discussion, but it's an amazingly atmospheric ride either way. The towering apartment complex where everything takes place is appropriately eerie. Reminds me a lot of Shivers by David Cronenberg. There are some generally unsettling reality blurs in there. Tension always lingers in the air. There's always a constant sense of unease. The film was a really dark, very powerful ending too, and I thought both the young actresses in the film deliver well. The whole thing, I think, could be seen as a bit over the top if viewed as a metaphor about a bitter young girl learning to appreciate and care for an autistic sibling, but I think the film is sort of about that. And this is a film that I sort of regret not being able to discuss with the Autism in Cinema podcast because we did being there with them. I think this would be another interesting one to look at with its portrayal as autism and seeing an autistic character having, you know, these sort of superpowers, but also as it being a tale of learning to appreciate a character with autism. But autism stuff aside, it's just an amazingly atmospheric ride, lots of uh, dark fantasy things going on there, and I was completely gripped from start to finish. I love it. It's brought up the Being There podcast and cinema through autism. So maybe we should try to get David back for another crossover and do The Innocence. That could be really interesting. So, so The Innocence was also on my top 10. And it's intriguingly directed and written by the co-writer of essentially all of Joachim Trier's films. So this is the co-writer on uh, The Worst Person in the World as well. And this film just feels completely different. 
It, it also ties in with this trend that you might have noticed with a few of my favorite films of the year, which is all about immersing yourself in the world of children, be that Brothers Keeper, Playground, or, or even uh, The Crossing. And most importantly, Petite Maman. Because this film does a very similar thing, where it kind of just has this magical element, but it's seen through the eyes of children that don't really question it the same way. And it's, you don't, haven't really seen this before, if you don't recall it, with just really young children discovering that they have supernatural powers in quite this way, maybe the other from the 70s. And just kind of playing with it, and this escalating children's game where you see the dark side of children and all of the film it really just take place in the form of play even when terrible terrible things are happening these children don't really have the maturity to process their emotion or process what is happening to quite understand what they're doing or the consequences of it leading to a lot of heartbreaking and terrible scenes i think this part of the film is just phenomenal uh, i do think that as the film progresses you get into slightly more conventional horror territory. Never fully conventional, but there's a couple of, for instance, tropes there that it would probably have been better if the film did not tie into. But it's just a unique film, a thoroughly engaging horror fantasy drama that I really think more people should see because it's such a standout of this kind of cinema, uh, and also one of the best films ever made in Norway, to be honest. It's just been an incredible year for Norwegian cinema. Well, like Sol, I didn't expect uh, this film when I started watching it. Not because I hadn't heard anything, but because, well, I, I guess I hadn't, but I knew the name of the director, right? Eskil Fogt. And I knew him because they are a collaborator of Joachim Trier. So... I did expect more of a character drama. I was definitely not expecting something this chilling. It was honestly one of the most chilling experiences I had in theaters last year. Uh, it's very, very effective. And the children are great. I mean, I don't know if it's uh, the reverse subtitles thing where I really like the performances of the children. Uh, but uh, anyway, they work for me quite well. So yeah, uh, I, I do agree. I think it's the best Norwegian film of the year, which is a really sought out prize uh, this year. Though I, I did like Worst Person in the World as well. But yeah, I guess I just have to generally agree with what you guys both said. It feels to me like I've watched a completely different film to everyone else. I'm really surprised to see how well The Innocence has been received. I watch a lot of horror films at horror festivals without knowing anything about them, going blind, and a lot of them aren't really up to that much and just kind of forget about them. And The Innocence was one where I just thought, that's okay, nothing great, and kind of forgot about it and I think for me it kind of bordered the line between art house and horror but didn't really embrace either angle enough to work for me so it's an okay film but nothing memorable and I'm surprised that it makes the top of Hell's list but it sounds like I'm in the minority here anyway so if you're into horror it's probably worth checking out to make out your own mind about it. I'm actually not that surprised it's at the top of my list, although not because it's a horror film, but because it explores a lot of things that I'm quite interested in, uh, depictions of children on film, um, culpability of children, characters who are actually not entirely evil, but just have different things going on there. And also I, I find autism a fascinating subject. As I think I've mentioned in a previous podcast, I do work with autistic kids, and the portrayal of the nonverbal autistic girl in the film is completely spot on. 
what I think is kind of interesting, but it might be something for another uh, podcast, maybe one with the autism through cinema, is whether it's actually a positive or a negative depiction of autism. So I'm not quite sure about that, whether you're getting a good or a bad portrayal that we're seeing this girl's got, you know, supernatural powers. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's a few things about the way autism is shown, which I had a few misgivings with. But look, I left the film not quite thinking it would be at the top of my list. I just thought it would be somewhere in the top five. But giving it a few days to think about it, it really swam around really well in my mind. And just the whole atmosphere of it, the dark, tall building, the uh, world without adults in there, all these culpable children doing crazy things that really, really dark ending. Yeah, just really co coalesced really well in my mind. Yeah, I would just add to that and say that I don't necessarily think this is a film for full-on horror fans. Obviously, Saul is, and he loved it, and I think a lot of horror fans will. But this is more of the let the right one in type of category, and even more different for, than that. I mean, this really is a dark fantasy drama with horror elements, and it's not your traditional horror film. Moving on to my number one pick of the year. And for anyone who have listened to our previous episodes, it, it will probably not come as a surprise. As Just as for uh, our 2018 and 2020 episode, I do have I'd Rather You the film on top. Bad Luck Banging or Looney Porn, which is so radical in its form and content that it opens with literal porn, or rather a graphic leaked sex tape which will set the stage for everything that follows, with the real question more or less being what is more indecent, this tape or society itself? The, the film is structured in three clear acts, each presented with a bright pink title card and mischievous music, but do not be fooled. While Bad Luck Banging certainly qualifies as a dark comedy, jokes come with punches to the gut and genuine distress and existential claustrophobia as the seams of modern society is deconstructed in just all its vileness. There is a clear human angle as Amy, a respected teacher, risks losing her job after her sex tape is discovered, but really uh, the Romania that exists around her feels like a much clearer protagonist in many ways, almost like landscapes in uh, Aguirre, to bring it back to our earlier uh, conversation. And this is almost all Act 1 is. Amy, usually alone on the streets, surrounded by ads and decay, we can feel Bucharest and its people, the busy streets, the rudeness and the lack of empathy. In a way, uh, bad luck uh, banging or looting porn can feel a bit like a gleeful trick to lure uh, unexpected viewers into a stern, off-putting history lesson and societal critique, perhaps a little bit like Parallel Mothers. It's austere look at streets during COVID with minimal dialogue as we simultaneously feel Amy's dread for the upcoming parents meeting where she might lose her job and just the dread of the busy book rest is already alienating to many and then Act 2 which can only be described as an associative essay. For instance, we are presented with the nativity scene along with the trivia that in 1943 
Romanian troops executed thousands of Jews and Roma people in great haste so that the soldiers could get back to celebrate the birth of Christ. Uh, this section is compiled of anecdotes, dictionary entries, statistics, archival footage, genitalia, fascism, military oppression, sarcasm, uh, and, and brutality, pretty much anything you can mention. Each little entry with its own label and each filling in a piece of Romania's complex history and present. And then Act 3, the climax, as the mock trial commences, as lewd and disgusting as you could expect, or frankly more so with prejudices laid bare and the crime of having a sex tape leaked being equaled to teaching the Jewish national propaganda known as the Holocaust. <laughs> its ludicrous, socially distant, masked up farce brings back so many associations to the essay, anti-Semitism and just the fascist underpinnings in Romania while bringing other uncomfortable overtones and personal clashes to just extreme intensity all through dialogue before things go so crazy I can't even begin to spoil it. Uh, oh, and just one final note before I let you guys jump in. I'm just so happy that Bad Luck Banging won the Golden Bear at the Berlinale and that Radio Yudas name is finally getting into the headlines around the world. I would not have expected it to be a film uh, like this that would uh, do it, but I'm really happy it did, and I'm happy that some of my co-hosts actually responded to it better than my previous Radio Yudas picks. So I would just love to hear your opinions. So, so Bad Luck Banging is really a film in three parts, right, as you described. And I guess your appreciation of the film would depend a lot on how well you think those three parts go together, I suppose. I think uh, you talked about it at length, but I, I think the first part is remarkable. Uh, I, I do think that no filmmaker has quite uh, managed to represent a modern street, right, a contemporary street in that way, a contemporary city in that way. And I think that's pretty remarkable what uh, Yudo does with that. Then there's the third part, which is a little more conventional and kind of more like a play, and I think works pretty well. And then there's the second part, which if you take it in isolation, it's okay. It's it's kind of funny observations and stylistically kind of fun. I don't know that it really adds to the film. To me, it was a bit of a hard stop in the middle. Again, it's amusing. It's stimulating in some ways, but I don't love that structure, I must say. And I felt like it detracted a bit from what Yuda does in, in the other two parts, but especially the first one. So this was a film that I appreciated quite a bit. The, the first part is really great. And uh, the actress... Is excellent, and I guess as a fellow history teacher, I do not have the same problem she has, but uh, I feel some, some sympathy, <laughs> especially when she is criticized for what she teaches. But I guess it's a little too meta for me, I suppose, the, that, that, that second part. But not quite. I, I do like some more coherence uh, in terms of style. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's generally uh, a pretty successful film and one I, I would recommend to people interested in art or cinema in general. Yeah, I can perfectly understand why you feel that way, uh, Matthew. And that's also one of the reasons why I was so surprised it won the Berlinale and got so much positive feedback that Judas older films did not, because it is a difficult and challenging film in that way that's not necessarily up to everyone's uh, taste. Just chiming in as another teacher who watched Bad Luck Banging, uh, my, my favourite part of it was the third section. I thought uh, that was 
really where it took off for me because you have this teacher who has to respond to these absolutely crazy and absurd demands of privileged parents, and I can relate to that a little bit. I thought the garish neon lighting was absolutely fantastic in the final third of it, and things just became increasingly absurd with their COVID-safe conference and trying to keep things COVID-safe. So that, for me, was where the film really took off. The first section was kind of interesting. The second section was just, yeah, the director doing what he likes to do with all these crazy interludes in there. But, you know, look, I, the film ended on a high note for me, although I think the false ending was a whatever. I don't know if it's a spoiler. A little bit overdone, but the film ended with a really strong final third, and for that it's a favourite film that I've seen from him. And I could totally understand with the COVID relevance why it might have been so popular at Berlin. I found Bad Luck Banging to be a very mixed bag, kind of similar to what Matthias said. The first part was very intriguing. I was going along with it. I was enjoying it. And then the second part came along and just completely lost me. I had no interest in the film after that. I've got to be honest, it didn't work for me. And then the third part came around and it was beginning to win me over just as it was coming to an end. I feel like if the second part wasn't there and there'd been a bit more about the main storyline there, it may have been a film that I enjoyed. I can certainly see why people enjoy it, though I'm still yet to be entirely convinced by Yuda. He's a filmmaker I respect and admire, but one whose cinematic language doesn't really speak to me. So not this time, but I'm still open to watching more of his films and seeing if he does make something that uh, resonates with me. And you'll pretty much have to, as by this precedent, I'll probably just keep picking how to use the films for my top fives going forward for the foreseeable future. Let's see how well it keeps up with uh, my preferences. Because obviously, as you might have guessed, that the middle section is obviously one of those things I really love seeing. And uh, also something where, one of the reasons why I kind of feel like he's the closest thing to my favorite director of all time, John Luc Godard, who also loved to see similar associative uh, crazy games to this. Yuda, it is entirely on creature, but I just love the way Yuda plays with meta. But I will say, the issue that you and Mathieu both pointed out with the middle section, while I love that, I do agree. I think that if that section was removed, it would probably work far better with most audiences. So anyone listening to this, be warned of that uh, middle section. And I think some of our audience uh, members might have noticed that I skipped you in revealing my number one favorite film, Tom. And that's actually because we have done a full episode on your favorite film. So why don't you just uh, bring out the surprise of what your number one favorite film of 2021 was? That's right, Chris. So my favorite film of 2021 is one we've already discussed at length in a previous podcast. So if you want to hear more about it, then you should listen to our episode on none other than Denis Villeneuve's adaptation of June, where we take a look at his staggering work and compare it to the Lynch version. Briefly touching upon it, I fell in love with June for many reasons. I'm a huge fan of epic sci-fi, which we don't see enough of on the big screen, and the incredible world-building and beautiful cinematography spoke to me in a way that few sci-fi extravaganzas manage. It's truly mesmerising to watch this excellent film at an IMAX screen. The booming soundtrack and the hypnotic visuals transported me to a world I could only ever imagine. I'll be first in line for June Part 2 when it's released, and if you haven't seen the first part, 
I suggest you stop what you're doing right now and watch this magnificent film. And that goes for you as well, Sol, because I know you haven't seen it. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, look, uh, everything that I've read about June makes it seem like it's not my sort of sci-fi film. You know, I prefer sci-fi films that are quite hard on the sci-fi content rather than adventure stories or world building. I'm not really big in world building fantasies. So, yeah, look, it's not a high priority for me. I think when it becomes free on streaming services, I'll probably give it a go then. But at the moment, I'm going to have to pay to view it on streaming services. So I'm like, yeah, not a priority. Plus, I also sort of want to watch the Lynch version first, and I haven't seen the Lynch version either. So, look, I'll get around to it eventually. But, yeah, I'm sorry. And obviously, you uh, narrowly escaped uh, having to watch it for this episode by the grace of us having done an episode on it before. So, yeah, everyone just seek out uh, the Dune episode where uh, Tom, Matthew, and I just dive into almost everything about this film. And with that said, thank you so much for listening and uh, join us again soon. You have been listening to Talking Images. The official podcast of icmforum.com.